Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. So, uh, so glad all of you are here. We are wrapping up, actually, our series, Glory and Redemption. And why are we wrapping it up? Well, because we're getting to the end of the history of Israel and the Old Testament, and we have kind of traced how God's glory and his plan for redemption are revealed all throughout the Old Testament, and how it is that the Old Testament is still relevant to our Christian walk. It's not something that we should look at as gone and done away with, but instead it is the story of God's plan and desire to redeem all of us. And he has done that, he's accomplished that by establishing and giving a man who will defeat sin and evil, who will descend from Abraham, who will be a prophet like Moses and a priest greater than Eli and a king greater than David. But the last week we kind of left that... Um, All of these promises that God made in the Old Testament about a man who would come, it seemed that they had been kind of sidelined because the the kingdom of Israel, the Jewish people, they have been subsumed, they've been taken over by the Babylonian Empire. And, And so now Israel no longer exists. The Jewish people, the people of God, the people through whom this special man who will defeat sin and evil is supposed to come, they are scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. And, and they, are, they are being slowly churned into the greater culture of the Babylonian culture. And so what we have going on is maybe this, this question, what's going to happen next? How is it that God's promises can come true if the people through which he promised to work no longer exist? And, and we, we saw last week that God continued to give prophecies and again continued to clarify who this coming man, this redeemer, would be, what he would look like. And so even in the midst of what looks like a failed plan, God's plan and his promises and his prophecies are continuing and they are sure. And so we want to look at what goes on during this time frame just a little bit, some of the things that God did. And so uh, if you open your Bible app, you can scroll along and find most of these passages in your Bible app. <coughs> <coughs> I got so excited, I choked on my own saliva. So that, what's that? Yeah, that's the but Daniel in your, in your Bible app. <laughs> Excuse me. I, so I've got a cough drop in my throat or in my mouth to soothe. So I'm I'm salivating a little extra heavy and. Yeah, sorry, that sounds gross, but we're all human. We know the story, right? You got a scratchy throat and, well, I drink water, but if I'm choking, it's just, that won't help. I'll just, I'll spew it on you, a la Gallagher. You'll end up sprayed, right? So anyway, Daniel chapter one, verses one through seven, and we're going to cover four different books of the Bible and a a huge chunk of history this morning. We're going to look at Daniel, and we're also going to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So if, if you know where those are and you've got your physical Bible, you'll maybe want to get your thumbs in those places. And we're not going verse by verse through all of them because then we would be here until 
midnight. But what we're going to do is just look at the big picture story and understand what God was doing during this time while his people were scattered in a foreign country under the rule of a pagan king, what it is he's doing to continue his plan of glory and redemption to save us and all of mankind. And so Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, it gives us a picture of what's going on. And it says this, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, the last of the kings of Judah, essentially, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then it continues by saying, The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. So Daniel begins to tell us how this era of displacement and being consumed by the Babylonian and then the Assyrian and Persian cultures, how it looks for the Jewish people. Nebuchadnezzar and his army defeat Judah, the kingdom of Judah. They take captives and they begin to take Jewish people back into Babylon in order to have them consumed and and mixed into the culture. And the goal for Nebuchadnezzar was to take people from captured lands and essentially turn them into Babylonians to get rid of their own culture, to get rid of their own viewpoints, to get rid of their gods and bring them to a place where they worshiped the gods of the Babylonian culture. And so Daniel tells us that in this first of the the waves of captive taken to Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar included lots of nobility and uh, well-healed and well-learned young men who were also very handsome. And so um, here's what, what we see is there are certain individuals among this group. And so the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. In other words, they were to join into the king's government and, and become servants of the king in his government system. So among them, from the Judahites, or the Jewish people, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So we have four specific people listed in the book of Daniel who are brought as captives to Babylon. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So most of us, we know Daniel because he is the writer of this book and the prophet who um, is, is most prominent in this book. But these three other guys, we're familiar with them, not by their Jewish names, of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but most of us know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or if you grew up on VeggieTales, Rakshak and Benny. And so um, here we are. We have the Jewish people have been taken captive. They are living 
in Babylon, and they're, they're, the goal is to essentially turn them into Babylonians so that Judaism and the Jewish people, the people by which God has promised his Messiah, that they will be wiped out. They will no longer be discernible from other cultures. And so what we see is we've got these four men who are called into captivity, and they stand up for their faith. They stand up for their belief in God. And what we see through the book of Daniel is God preserving faithful believers. That even in the midst of a culture that is combative towards their belief, that actually is, is going to, we'll see, uh, punish them extremely and severely for their faith, that God preserves faithful believers. And so in this midst of what looks like a messed up plan that's going to go nowhere, we see God is actively keeping his people safe for the sake of his plan of glory and redemption. The first of the, the major stories we see in the book of Daniel is that of Daniel 3, where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are brought to a point where um, they're, they're in a situation where Nebuchadnezzar declares that everybody is supposed to worship this big statue of himself every time instruments play. And so these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refuse to bow down and worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. And the punishment for their refusal is to be cast into a furnace. And it would just have been a, essentially a brick furnace, but these were large-ish buildings that were built. They, they, they put lots of uncured bricks in there, and then they'd build huge fires, and the fires would harden the bricks. And that was the intent of these buildings. But instead, in this circumstance, the building gets used as a punishment for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, because they refused to worship a God other than the one true God. They refused to worship Nebuchadnezzar as God because they, they know that they must remain faithful. So they're cast into this fiery furnace. It's, it's actually heated up to 10 times its normal heat. And the men who throw them into the furnace die from the exposure to the heat. But then after the course of a few moments... They're looking into the furnace, and they see not three men, but four men in the fire. And, and four men come walking out to, uh, of, of the furnace. The fourth kind of fades off, and the three come out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they, their, their ropes are burnt off. They come walking out free, but they don't smell of smoke, and none of them are singed or harmed in any way. And we see that God comes, and God himself, as some think this was maybe a Christophany, the, 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 the angel of the Lord came and was with them in that fiery furnace and protected them and walked them out because they were faithful believers. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they live, they're exalted. Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, your God's something special, and ends up uh, himself worshiping to a certain extent the one true God. And, and God keeps these three men because of their faithfulness. 
Later in the book of Daniel, many of us are familiar with this second story of God preserving his faithful people. Daniel is presented with a challenge. Others are vying for his authority. They want him cast down from... um, his respectful position under a new ruler later on in the empire, King Darius. And so they, they say uh, to, to King Darius, hey, how about this? How about make it for a month that nobody can pray to any other god but you? And, and wouldn't that be great, king, that everybody prayed to you? Uh, but they knew Daniel was a faithful believer, and three times a day he would face Jerusalem and he would pray. And Daniel refused to stop praying. Daniel refused to give up his faith in the one true God and to to either not pray at all or pray to Darius. And so Daniel gets caught praying. The punishment is he gets thrown into a cave full of hungry lions, and most of us know the story. Angels of the Lord come and feed the lions pizza and... Wait, no, that's the youth group version. Sorry. But, but the, the lions, they do not consume Daniel. It should have been that immediately these lions would have torn him limb from limb, would have eaten his flesh and consumed him. But instead, Daniel's just hanging out in the lion's den with the lions overnight. They come back the next morning. Darius sees that Daniel is still alive. They call him out. He comes out of the lion's den. Darius says, hey, your God is something special. And then he throws all the guys who uh, made the recommendation to him to trap Daniel, throws them into the lion's den, and guess what happens to them immediately? Snack time. And so we see God miraculously preserving men and women who will be faithful to his word, who will be faithful to worship him, who will be faithful to pray only to him. And so even in the midst of a culture where they are persecuted, even to the point of being cast into fires and lion's dens, God preserves his faithful people. And so we see that God is in the the act of preserving during this time. But not only does God preserve his people, God also restores And we're going to see uh, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that God has not just only, not only just kept his people safe in the midst of a pagan culture, but he also will fulfill his promise. And after 70 years, he will restore Israel, restore Jerusalem, restore the temple, and set the stage for this promised man to come from that place, from those people in just the right time. And so God restores. If you have your Bible, you can flip it over to Ezra chapter 1, and we see this begin to unfold in the book of Ezra. Ezra was a a priest and a prophet. Uh, He was a man who, who recorded how the temple of God was restored. And it says this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, now it's, it's important to understand how this went down, that Nebuchadnezzar was the king who took over Judah, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom under his son and grandson was eventually overthrown by the Medes, 
and the Persians. And so we get a, a different line of kings that includes Darius and Cyrus and Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. What a cool name, right? Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes II and Darius II. And so there's this, this line of kings over these number of years who we see things unfolding under. And, and so in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of the heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. So King Cyrus... The king of the Persians, a pagan king, is roused by the Spirit of the Lord and declares, hey, there's a God out there. I kind of believe in him. He's told me I'm supposed to rebuild his temple. And so God himself sets the stage after 70 years of punishment for his people and separation from the promised land and separation from the temple and Jerusalem. He himself sets the stage for the temple to be rebuilt, for the worship by which he is to be glorified and the system of faith from which the Messiah would come. He he, he establishes for it to be renewed and restored. And so there are a number of Israelites, a number of people from Judah who gather together, who go back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild the temple and begin to establish once again temple worship, the sacrificial system, and and obeying what God has commanded in his law. And so we see that there are 42,000 Jewish people who returned to Jerusalem for the sake of rebuilding the temple. And they came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rahem, and Banan. What great names. If you're looking for names for kids, just dive into the Old Testament. You'll find some things that'll give them a great life. I mean, Bilshan. Wow, hey, great. Mispar. Anyway, so this is the list of leaders who said, Cyrus says, I want to rebuild the temple. And these leaders say, we will go back. We will see to it that the temple is restored. We will see to it that the temple is rebuilt. And they gather up under them 42,000 other, others of the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and restore the temple of God. Uh, it says this in Ezra 5, 2, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, son of Jezodak, began to rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. The prophets of God were with them, helping them. And so these men, the opportunity comes up and they say, we'll go. How exciting. We get to go rebuild the temple. Cyrus made all the provisions for the rebuilding of the temple. And they go back and they begin to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem so that God might be worshipped as he had ordained and desired in the Old Testament. Ezra 6.15 tells us this. This house was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, it takes a number of years, but these faithful men are presented with an opportunity and they say, we're going to go and we're going to do what God desires. And the temple is restored. And so God really establishes and restoring this temple, he establishes the place through which 
His promised man, his Messiah, who will destroy sin and evil. This is the place he'll come from. This is the system he's going to come from. And not only does does God restore the temple, but God also restores proper worship in the temple. After these events, during the reign of King Artaxerxes of Persia, Ezra. So we're introduced to Ezra in the the book of his own name. Ezra chapter 7 verse 1. And the reason we, we uh, aren't introduced to Ezra until chapter 7 is because he wrote the book, so it's named after him. But the first six chapters are his recording history prior to his arrival on the scene. So by Ezra chapter 7, it's like, all right, now I'm here. And Ezra comes onto the scene, and in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, God's word tells us this. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. So God restores the temple through Zerubbabel and the others, and then he sends Ezra. And Ezra says, God has called me to study his law, to study the statutes and the ordinances, and to teach everybody else in Israel how to obey them. And so God, after establishing his temple, he sets up and he reestablishes through Ezra the proper religious life of the Jewish people. And so the, the, the temple is now rebuilt. It's not as nice as it used to be, but it's there. And there's an altar outside, and they're beginning to do sacrifices, and they're beginning to to celebrate the feasts and the festivals that God had commanded of them. They're beginning to to follow the law of sacrifice, and beginning to, to strive to be faithful believers once again. And it's all under the hand of God. God kept the faithful believers. God changed the hearts of the king. And men and women said, we'll take that opportunity. We'll go build the temple. And then God called a man, Ezra, to a specific ministry of reestablishing the temple worship. And we see this is God's hand in restoring their Jewish faith that his Messiah might be birthed from it. So what looked like just a hundred years before, abject failure and God's plan going completely off the rails, now we see God's faithfulness. And we see that God has worked through faithful and called people to establish the restoration of his temple. Now we see, again, another example of God preserving his people in the book of Esther. We believe timeline-wise, the book of Esther happens sometime in the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. So it's in that kind of time frame. We don't know the exact years because it's a little hard to nail it down in these ancient histories. They didn't treat history the same way that we do. We like exact dates. We like exact moments. We want to know what play the president was watching when he was shot, right? But in in ancient history, they they kind of, they accounted by the number of years a ruler had been ruling, and sometimes the names get a little confusing, and sometimes the dates get a little confusing, but we think Esther happens sometime in the middle of everything that's going on with Ezra and Nehemiah. And so the story of Esther is the story of God once again preserving his people. 
Many of you are familiar with the story of Esther. The king has a bad day. He gets rid of his wife because she doesn't obey him the way he likes. He sets up a deal to get a new wife, invites lots of pretty young women in, begins to interview them all, and here's what happens. We're introduced to Esther very early in the story, but by chapter 2, we find out what's going to happen with her. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. So this, queen, this king, his name was Ahasuerus. Say that three times fast, right? His name's Ahasuerus. And he gets rid of his wife Vashti because she doesn't do what he wants interviews a bunch of virgins, picks Esther, makes her queen. Now, what does this tell you about the king of the day? He's got lots of authority, doesn't he? He's someone to be respected, somebody to kind of, you know, be very careful around. Keep that in mind as we move forward. So during Esther's part as queen and and her time in the castle, in in the palace, a man named Haman comes up to power. And Haman comes to the king, and he informs King Ahasuerus, There is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. So what can we know about the Jewish people at this point still? They're still working hard to be faithful to God. They want to follow after him. They're keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. Is it not in the king's best interest to to tolerate them? It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. There, it wasn't a question. It was a statement. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. So Haman, he's got a beef with the Jewish people, and he says, King Ahasuerus, wouldn't it be better if these people who are kind of outsiders and do their own thing, wouldn't it be better if they all died? And the king kind of says, you know, that sounds great. Why don't you do that? Write up a rule for me, and I'll sign it, and we'll make that happen. And this is what happens. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people. Now, it's interesting that God's word gives us three different words for wipe out, isn't it? I mean, because one word would have been enough to destroy the Jewish people. That would have been enough. No, we don't just get destroy. We get destroy, kill, and annihilate. When God's word says the same thing three different times, it means it's really serious. It's a big deal. And so the plan is to utterly wipe out the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. So there is now a plan to destroy the Jewish people, to wipe them out. And once the king in this era signs an edict, it cannot be revoked. In other words, he couldn't go, oh, my bad, veto that, let's, 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 let's just start over. So uh, what, what goes on though is we've got Esther who is Jewish, she is in the palace, she is living under the king and her cousin Mordecai, who is a prominent man, he tells a messenger that he's sending to Esther to tell her this. Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
Once again, if you were raised on VeggieTales, all you can hear is Paul Grape's voice. But here we have Esther, a Jewish woman, put in a position of authority simply by what we would see as happenstance, but we begin to understand it's actually the hand of God. And God has put her in this place, her cousin Mordecai says, so that she might save her people. And so God has been orchestrating the preservation of his people. What happens is Esther, in in fear, honestly, for her own life, has to approach the king, her husband. Because if she approaches him on royal business while he's on the throne, and he does not receive her in in an appropriate manner and open the door for her to speak, the penalty for that is death. To come to the king unrequested, on your own, with business of your own that is not his, the penalty for being rejected is to die. And we know that the king is not beyond putting aside his wife, because he's already done it once. And so Esther knows this is a big deal. So she ends up approaching Ahasuerus. She gains favor with him, invites him to her own chamber chambers for a meal, uh, invites along the guy who was trying to get all the Jews killed. So uh, she, she uh, has Haman come in and, and have dinner too, and it ends up making it clear what's going on, lets Ahasuerus know that there is someone in his kingdom who is threatening her life and the life of all of her people, and he's like, who is it? And she says, it's Haman right here, the guy that we're having dinner with. The guy that you let trick you into declaring a death penalty over all the Jews. So the king gets angry. He uh, sends Haman out to the own gallows, his own gallows that he had prepared to try and kill Mordecai. And then the king's anger subsides for the moment. But then something must be done with this command to kill the Jews. And so the king sends out another edict. He cannot take back his first one. But he sends out a second one. And he says this, The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. So Ahasuerus says to the Jewish people, you can protect yourselves. In fact, I encourage you to do so. And it turns around and the Jewish people, they are preserved once again by the hand of God. By by God taking and putting Esther in just the right place at just the right time to make just the right request so that his people are preserved. And so we see God preserving once again his chosen people. And then finally, as, as we get to the, to the last of, of the pictures of God's restoration of his people, if we open up to Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God's word tells us that Nehemiah, he was, uh, he was praying, he was spending time with God, and he's, he's thinking about 
Sorry, I got to get to it here. Verses one through four. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Jerusalem. And I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant, is in the, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the Lord of the heavens. So we see that that the temple has been restored and worship has been restored, but the city of Jerusalem that is surrounding the temple and protects the temple and protects the people of God, it's still in ruins. And the people there are suffering greatly and they're, they're facing marauders and bandits. And Nehemiah hears this and he is heartbroken to know that God's people are suffering like this, to know that the, the city of God is broken and destroyed like this. And so he begins to pray. And, and then after praying, we see that he has opportunity in chapter 2 to do something about this. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why do you look so sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. So Nehemiah was the cupbearer, the wine bringer for the king, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes knows him well enough. He's like, Nehemiah, what's got you down, man? You've never been sad in my presence. What's going on here? There's, there's got to be something wrong. And Nehemiah responds this way. He says, I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Now, this is a different circumstance from when Ezra and Zerubbabel were sent to, to rebuild the temple. They were, they, uh, Cyrus was, was told by God, build the temple. And they said, we're ready, send us. In this circumstance, Nehemiah sees the state of God's city and he is heartbroken. The king sees his heartbreak and says, what do you need? And Nehemiah says, let me go build the city. Let me go rebuild the wall because I am just crushed that my people are living like they're living. And guess what the king says? Go do it. Go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Go and rebuild the wall. I'm going to go ahead and give you what you need. I'm going to send you with letters of protection. And by chapter 6 of Nehemiah, we see this. The wall was completed in 52 days. Nehemiah gathers the people of God together. They begin to rebuild the city of God. And they use the provisions that have been given to them. And at certain points during these 52 days, they are standing there with swords in one hand and trowels to to lay stone in the other hand because they've got enemies that are outside the city walls trying to come in and stop the rebuilding of the city. And so they are so desperate and so excited to rebuild the city that they're rebuilding with one hand and protecting from enemies with the other. 
and they've got guards stationed at all the weak points, and, and they, they take, and different families are responsible for different areas of the wall to rebuild, and in 52 days, they rebuild the wall. In 52 days, because of the heartbreak of Nehemiah and his passion for God's city and God's people, the wall is rebuilt. When all our enemies heard this, all the surrounding nations were intimidated and lost their confidence, for they realized that this task had been accomplished because Nehemiah was a good leader and fundraiser. No, because of our God or by our God. God restored the city of Jerusalem through Nehemiah. And by restoring the city of Jerusalem, God begins the process essentially of restoring the kingdom through which this king better than David, this prophet better than Eli, this, this, or this priest better than Eli, this prophet just like Moses, this man who would crush sin and destruction and despair, this is where he's going to come from. And God begins this process of reestablishing worship and the temple and his kingdom so that the Messiah might come from it. And so we see in these, these stories that we've looked at today, Daniel and the three, they were faithful in persecution. Zerubbabel and, and the others, they were willing in an opportunity Ezra had a specific calling to a task, and God gave him the opportunity to live it out. Esther had no anticipation, had no no desire, no plans to be used by God, and yet was placed by God in just the right place at just the right time to do exactly what needed to happen so that God's people might be preserved. And then Nehemiah, he looked at what was going on in the world, and he was heartbroken, heartbroken, for God's people and God's glory. And so when we look at what God did, when we look at how God preserved and restored here in these stories, in this time of his people being in captivity in Babylon and Persia, what is the key to God's work? Well, the key to God's work in this era, faithful believers, willing workers, People who were called by God and fulfilled that calling and chased it. People who realized that God had placed them in the middle of a circumstance and they didn't expect it, but it was their time to shine. Or people who looked at the world around them and were heartbroken because others were suffering and God's glory was diminished. And so we see in this era, God does all the work of restoring and preserving his people but he does it through the lives of faithful, willing, called, placed, and heartbroken individuals. And so when we look at what God has promised, that there's going to be a man who will defeat sin and evil, he'll descend from Abraham, he'll be a prophet like Moses, he'll be a priest greater than Eli, he'll be a king greater than David. All of this plan was dependent upon God preserving and restoring his people. If the Jewish people had been wiped out, would there be a Messiah? No. He was promised to come from the descendants of Abraham. If, if Haman's plans had come to pass and come to fruition and all of the Jewish people had been wiped out, no Messiah. 
No savior from sin. No man who will defeat evil. If there's no kingdom, there's no king. If there's no, if there's no worship, there's no priest. If there's no temple, there's no faithfulness. If there's no people, there's no prophet. I mean, you, you see how critical it is that these things are restored, that God's people are preserved. And God does all of this great work. He, he keeps the Jewish people. He keeps the Jewish faith. He keeps the Jewish kingdom. He does all of this work through these individuals. None of them were the Messiah, but the faithfulness of each and every one of them set the stage for the Messiah to come. You see, when God restored his kingdom, when God restored his temple, that was not the coming of the Messiah, but it was necessary. It set the stage for in the fullness of time, the Messiah to come. This man who would defeat sin and destruction and evil would come because these things were restored. Now, just as God used these folks, Daniel and the three, Zerubbabel and the others, Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah, just as God used them, none of them are the Messiah, but they all set the stage for the Messiah. And they all are playing critical roles in God's plan for redemption. You and I, we also play a role in God's plan of glory and redemption. Now we understand, we look back at the Old Testament, that all of that brings us to the cross. And the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who puts on flesh, lives a perfect life, born of a virgin, sinless, dies on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins and mine to satisfy the wrath and judgment of the Father, to purchase us from the deserved eternal death that we earn by our own sin. And then he rose again on the third day, declaring that everyone who would believe on him can be saved by faith through grace. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so our role is not to get get the Messiah to come, but our role is now that the Messiah has come, we play a part in sharing this glory and redemption with the world around us. We play a part in opening the door for others to see who Jesus is, to understand their need for him. <laughs> the elders, we, were, we meet every Sunday morning. Uh, Don and Steve and I, we pray, we talk about church life. We were talking about Christmas and, and how a lot of churches are taking Christmas Sunday off. And we were just kind of laughing in our hearts, just like, how funny is it that Jesus is the most important person in our life, God of all creation, our Savior, and we will celebrate his birthday by skipping church. Right? Well, well this, is, this is some of the things. We look at our own lives and we say, Jesus is my best friend. Jesus is my savior. Jesus is my king. And yet I refuse to play any part in his plan for glory and redemption. I refuse to share my faith. I refuse to stand up. And, and God is calling us to be men and women like Daniel and the three who stood up and said, culture tells me I must do this, but I refuse, and I will stand on the truth of the one true God. We've been called to be men and women like Zerubbabel and Yeshua, who, when there is an opportunity presented to us, we say, I will take that opportunity. I didn't expect it, but here it is. I'm going to take it. God wants us to be men and women like Esther, who, when you're placed in a position, one where you didn't expect to be used, but all of a sudden it's clear that you're the only one who can do the job, that you stand up and do it. 
Men and women like Ezra who have a specific calling in our lives. We say, I want to reach out to these people. I want to reach out to this group. And then we chase that calling with all that we are. Men and women like Nehemiah who are heartbroken for the world around us and the torn down and the destroyed and the exiles who want nothing more than to bring the Christ, the Son of the living God, into their lives and to build them up into new life. God's word says this to us. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, we have been called to continue the story of glory and redemption. We have been called to go out and to let others know about what our great God has done all throughout the Old Testament in preserving and promising and in in the new when it all comes true and how it can change life today. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Acts 1.8, Jesus says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have been called to continue the story of glory and redemption everywhere we go. What's interesting about a witness, if you are called to testify at a trial, what are you asked to testify about? What you have seen, what you have heard, and what you know to be true. Do you realize it's all God is asking you to do? In your everyday life, to continue the story of glory and redemption, everywhere you go, just talk about what you've seen. Talk about what you've heard. Talk about what you know is true about your Savior, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't say, starve to death, live in a wigwam, freeze, be too hot. He doesn't say you got to go somewhere else. He just says everywhere you go, talk about what you know. Everywhere you go, stand up for what is true. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. The apostle Paul in Romans 10 talks about what it is, how we are saved. It is by belief in Christ as the Lord and trusting that the Father has raised him from the dead, confessing him as your Savior. This is what saves us. But how then can they call on him they have not believed in? How can someone call Jesus Lord if we've never told him that he is? How can they believe without hearing about him if no one has ever told them the truth of the gospel? How can they believe it? And how can they hear without a preacher? And this word preacher, it's not the dude at the front of the room. It's everyone who would stand up and proclaim the name of Jesus. And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. The truth is is that all of us have been sent. Remember Matthew 28? Go out. As you're going, make disciples. I'm sending you out. What else do we see in Scripture? Colossians 1.24. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and, I'm complete, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Now, you might read this and go, what's Paul talking about? Wasn't Jesus' suffering adequate for our salvation? Absolutely. 
Jesus' suffering was complete and adequate for the salvation of all who would believe. But the Apostle Paul understood something about the Christian faith. There was a price to be paid for lives to be changed. And for him and us, that price can and maybe even should be our own personal suffering for the sake of the gospel. And what is suffering? Well, sometimes suffering is to forego something for the sake of sharing your gospel. Sometimes suffering is to be made fun of at work. Sometimes suffering is to be excluded. Sometimes suffering is to to not have the place of prominence that you long for because you were faithful to God. Sometimes suffering might be getting thrown into a fiery furnace and not surviving. You realize there are martyrs, Christians who gave their lives burned at the stake. Polycarp, a faithful Christian, burned at the stake because he refused to recant his trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Sometimes suffering is extreme. Sometimes suffering is nominal. But every time we suffer, it is for the sake of someone else's salvation and the church growing. That should be our heart. That should be our mindset. A willingness to do whatever it takes to share the good news. Romans 8, 28 and 29, here's what God's word promises. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And some of us, we stop there and go, God's gonna make everything better. What this passage is saying, not that God will always make everything perfect and better, but that everything that happens in your life, when you are rightly focused, will serve to glorify God and draw others to him. Because he goes on to say, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, everything God does, his goal is to bring people to Jesus Christ. That's the plan, glory and redemption. When you suffer, it's to bring people to Jesus. When you, things are going well, it's so that you have a testimony to bring others to Jesus. But in every circumstance, we should be like these men and women of the Old Testament. They didn't even know what they were doing hardly. They were just being faithful in the moment. And yet God was using them to bring redemption and the possibility for renewed life to all of mankind. Now that we know what's been provided, shouldn't we be even more excited to be faithful? Shouldn't we be even more excited to give of ourselves? In this Christmas season, I want to encourage you, don't give ties and socks, but give Jesus. Give the gospel. If you really love someone, don't wrap it up in a box that's going to be opened. Thank you. And then end up in goodwill by next Christmas. Give them the good news of Jesus Christ. Because here's, here's what we're all looking at, where we're all at. We must all be ready to be faithful in persecution. And I, I got to tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm, I'm not one of those doom and gloom guys. I don't look and go, oh, politics, it's all going to hell. I used to be like that. I'm a lot more moderated now because I trust God's hand much more than I used to. But we do now live in a world where there is the potential that if you are a genuine believer, you might face actual physical persecution for your faith, even here in the United States. Persecution in your work, persecution in housing, persecution in availability of food. It could all be on the table because Revelation tells us some some wild things could be coming down the pike when it comes to believers in persecution. We must be willing to be faithful in persecution like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. And what happened when they were faithful in persecution? God provided. God used them 
God preserved them. We must be willing in opportunity. When there is an opportunity to serve God, when there is an opportunity to advance the gospel in your life, I want to encourage you to take it. There's an opportunity for you to go work at the mission and and sort clothes. Go do that. Advance the gospel that way. There's an opportunity for you to, to pay for someone's Thanksgiving meal. Pay for it. Bless them. Pray over them. Tell them why you've done it. When there is opportunity, be willing to take it. Be open to it. Like Zerubbabel and the others. Cyrus said, I want to rebuild the temple. And they said, we're in. We're doing it. God has made a way. It's an opportunity. This is amazing. Would you be that? Willing and opportunity? When you're called to a task, be faithful to it. Ezra left home. He went to Jerusalem. He went to the temple. And he began to work with the people of God to reestablish their right relationship with God. When you are called to task, would you be willing to move, to do, to give, to serve? Would you? Because that's what God's called us to. Understand that each and every one of us, we are placed by God in the places where we are for such a time as this. We look and go, well, you know, Esther, that's a special story. That's, that's, that's a miracle thing. Yes, it is, but so is where you are right now. The job that you're in, you've been placed in for such a time as this. The places where you live, the neighborhood you're in, you're there for such a time as this. God has intentionally placed you there to represent his glory and bring his redemption into the lives of the people that he's placed you around. You're there for such a time as this. And I want to encourage you, and this is as much for me as anybody, to be heartbroken for God's people and God's glory. To be heartbroken for other Christians who are suffering, but also to be heartbroken for those who are God's people who don't yet even know that they're God's people. To be heartbroken for the lost and the unsaved. And listen, that is so difficult in today's day and age. If you are watching the news at all, they are trying to divide us up and make us us against them in every way possible. By our hair color, our skin color, our eye color, where we prefer to eat, where we live in the country, what, what Bible we use. I mean, the world is trying to divide us up a hundred different ways and make us hate others. But God would have us be heartbroken for those who are unsaved. He would have us look at them not with hatred, but with a sadness that leads us to action. And, and listen, I am as guilty as anyone of driving down the road and condemning everyone I encounter to the pit of hell, right? Because of the way they're driving and the day I'm having. But God would have us, when we drive down the road and somebody cuts us off, be heartbroken that clearly they're not saved. Clearly, they need Jesus. The people that we hate the most when we look around the world, us or look around in our world, are the people we should be most heartbroken for when it comes to their salvation and their need for Jesus, and then doing something about it. So today, the beautiful lesson that God gives us is that He is always at work. He is always at work restoring and preserving his people. He is always at work building his kingdom. He is always at work in the, the, the process of glory and redemption. But as he works, he uses faithful, willing, called, placed, and heartbroken believers to do that work. Would you be amongst the ones 
he would use today and this Christmas season? Let's take a moment, and I just want you to look over this this list of descriptors of people God works through. And would you pray for yourself that God would help you to be what you should be and fill you up in the places where you're lacking so that you might glorify him and be used by him for the redemption of others. So let's just take a moment. Worship team, don't come up yet. I want you guys to do the same. Take a moment. Look through the list and see where God would have you focus this Christmas season on being used by him for his glory and the redemption of others. Father God, we thank you for your glorious plan. We thank you for the way that you want to reveal yourself to mankind and, and, and show us just how amazing you are. We thank you for your plan of redemption, of calling the broken, the hurting, the sin laden to you for cleansing and renewal and life. We thank you that you used people like Zerubbabel, people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you used persons like like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, folks who were willing, folks who were uncertain, (laughs) folks who felt called but didn't know what it might take, folks who were heartbroken. We thank you that you used people like them because we now know you can use people like us in times that are bleak, in situations where it looks like all hope is gone, in places where the world is against us, where the culture is trying to squash us, we know that you can use us because you used them. We know that you can reveal your glory and your plan for redemption through people like us because you used people like them. And so today, Father, we ask that you would help us to to have mindsets by which we might be faithful in persecution. Help us to understand that when people condemn us and hate us and look down on us for our faithfulness to our Savior Jesus, it is to your glory and it is to our good that persecution is actually you smiling down on us and and saying you belong to me. And we know that you'll preserve us and keep us through difficult times. Father, may, may we be people who are, are just responding to opportunity like Zerubbabel and the others that, that we would see where you're working and when we know there's something to be done, we would jump in and say, I'll do it. Let me serve here. Let me share your good news here. Let me, sh- let me proclaim the gospel here. Help us to be like Ezra when you've placed a burden on our heart, when you've placed a calling on our heart that we'll do whatever it takes to fulfill it. We'll leave what's comfortable. We'll leave what's easy. We'll go to difficult places and do what you've made us for. 
Father God, we we thank you that you've placed each and every one of us where we are today for such a time as this. Because just like Esther, we've been placed and there's some work to do for your glory and to bring redemption into the world where we work. And Lord, most of all, may we be like Nehemiah. May we have hearts that are broken for the broken down lives around us. May we have hearts that are, are, are just pierced for the, the lives that are in shambles and in desperate need of redemption. And may we not just be heartbroken and pierced for them, but may we also do something about it and share the good news of your son with them. In all of these things, we know that you are faithful, that you will preserve, that you will restore. And so we pray that we might be faithful, that we might be willing, that we might be called, that we might be placed, and that we might be heartbroken to your glory and the redemption of the world around us. In your name we pray this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Worship team, would you guys make your way up to close us out with our last song of the day? And once that last song's done, everyone's invited to join us downstairs for, for uh, lunch. Even if you weren't planning on staying, would you consider? Would you think about it? We got ham, there's potatoes, there's green beans, and there's, there's salad. There's lots of salad. So even if you don't like anything else, there's salad and rolls. And, and, and what's more filling than the food is the fellowship. So I'd encourage you to stay and hang and share some words with others who love Christ and love you. So, worship team, you ready? No. Okay, how long does it take to flip a switch and get right? Come on, man. No. Let's stand and sing together and worship to our God. Save my life, I'm bought.
with the blood of Christ I have been redeemed where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom I am free amen where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom I am free amen where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom I am free amen where the spirit of the Lord is for freedom that Christ set you free. We are free from, from fear. We are free from the expectations of the world set free to proclaim the gospel and share without fear of any man knowing that God will preserve, protect, and restore us. May God bless you this week as you seek his face. May you be faithful. May you look for opportunities. May you live out the calling God has placed in your life and heart. May you be an understanding person that where you are matters and God will use you right where you're at. And may your hearts be broken for the lost and the hurting around you. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the the time together in worship and song in your word. May we continue to worship you in faithful fellowship as we love one another and encourage each other. Bless the food to our bodies and our time to your glory and our good. For those, well, for all of us as we leave these doors, may we be faithful, may we be 
seeking your face. Maybe we, may we be looking for ways to glorify you and to share in this story of redemption by sharing the good news of your son, Jesus. In his name we pray this morning. Amen. God bless you guys. See, hope to see you all downstairs. So come join in, grab a bite. Even if you just stay for a few minutes and talk to somebody you've never talked to, share some time together.